Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, June the 22nd. This week we're talking about suicide, which is a very complex problem and not something we've covered in great detail in the Lancet before. But in the current issue, dated June the 23rd to the 29th, we have a three-part series and also a short editorial. There is a research article and also some other content in the issue. To talk me through or to talk us through this series, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Niall Boyce. Let's start off by, as ever, defining the problem. I mean, it's a terribly difficult, often taboo topic to even discuss, mm. isn't it, suicide? But it, obviously, it has a massive impact globally. What do we know about the data? What we know about the data is that, according to the World Health Organization, every year around one million people uh, die from suicide. And this works out as a global mortality rate of about 16 per 100,000. However, there are quite considerable variations in this figure depending on where you go in the world. If we just take uh, male statistics alone, in Belarus, the figure would be around 49 males per 100,000 die by suicide every year. If we go to the UK, that figure is quite a bit lower. It's around 11 per 100,000. The variation is is quite considerable, and this is one of the things which makes it such a challenging problem to address. And just following on from that, presumably there is no simple way of looking at this problem, the way in which people actually take their own lives, again, vary across different uh, regions and cultures. It does vary, and one of the other issues is that of classifying deaths by suicide. In the UK, we have a, a very... Uh, rigid system of uh, coroner's inquests. But even then, those statistics will not completely reflect the problem. Coroners might give verdicts of uh, accidental death or death by misadventure in cases where it's not completely clear that it's a suicide. This might be because of concerns about the balance of evidence. It can also be because, quite honestly, uh, coroners are human beings too, and they worry about the impact of a verdict of suicide on the family. So any statistics we have have the potential for actually underestimating the problem. So presumably, any global effort to understand suicide must be coming up with as clear as possible some, some ideas about suicide prevention at the population level. Mm. Is that the approach? Is that where we are? There are several approaches. Obviously, at the population level, uh, there are means which you can take to uh, reduce suicide. You also have to look at how mental health services are delivered, because delivering the appropriate care to people who are depressed or who have other serious mental illnesses is also a way to prevent suicide. Let's look at the series in a little more detail. Mm -hmm. Three papers. The first paper... Uh, is looking specifically at suicide and self-harm in a very specific population, mm. that is, adolescents. So presumably, this is a key target group of, of suicide risk. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. If we just look at self-harm, all the figures show that in countries such as, as the UK, um, around 10% of adolescents will deliberately harm themselves at some point. Now, this is a key place to intervene because not only is that indicative of distress on the part of children, adolescents, young people, but also it's a way of identifying those individuals who are at risk of going on to develop other mental health problems and, of course, are at a greater risk of suicide. And I know there are many risk factors, but can you just give examples of the mm -hmm. type of risk factors we're looking at within the adolescent population for self-harm and suicide? One of the few universal rules about suicide is that it's a very multifactorial thing. And a death by suicide really represents the end point at which there are many stages at which intervention is possible. If we're looking at the risk factors for self-harm and suicide in adolescence, we can split those into, into three main areas. We can talk about the, the social and educational factors. 
So um, females are more likely to self-harm than males. However, males are more likely to die by suicide than females. We can also talk about low socioeconomic status. Lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender adolescents are again more at risk of self-harm and suicide. There are also life events which can affect the risk, so parental death or uh, childhood abuse, bullying. And also we have psychiatric factors, so emerging mental health problems, drug and alcohol misuse, uh, certain personality factors. It's really a, a confluence of these, plus, uh, of course, a matter of timing and events which, which intervene in life, which, which can put adolescents and, and children at risk. An important point here, as a longitudinal study which, uh, which we published some months ago showed, is that the majority of adolescents who self-harm will stop doing it. However, it is a behaviour which is very distressing for the adolescent, it's distressing for family, for friends, and it's very important to look into it, to work out what the problems are and how they can be addressed. There are some interesting and also controversial issues, aren't there, specifically concerning therapy, treatment, mm. antidepressants, for example. Do you want to talk about that? And also, this review also mentions the role of new media that could mm. be both good and bad. Interesting areas there. To address the point first with antidepressants, the data there is, is very controversial, although there is no doubt that appropriate treatment for depression, whatever form that takes, will reduce the risk of, of suicide ultimately. The psychological treatments for adolescents who self-harm and may be at risk uh, of suicide, there is very little evidence, but right now there's a lot of interest in a certain form of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy, which uh, has been used in, in some cases to good effect with uh, adults with uh, personality difficulties such as borderline personality. Now the role of new media is a very controversial one and it's moving so quickly at the moment that it's almost hard to track it. There is the worry about that form of instant chat and communication and disseminating a possibly dangerous information uh, in a manner which is unregulated. But there's also the potential there for, for points to intervene and offer support in a very uh, immediate, anonymous and direct way. We previously discussed research published in The Lancet showing potential benefits of, mm. of computer-based um, cognitive therapy, for example. Yes. Yes. So it's a classic example of new media being, being both the enemy and the sort of mm. saviour at the same, potentially at the same time. Yes, and, and to some extent this is an argument which has been going on uh, for, for hundreds of years, for generations. Uh, one of the the big worries about the media and reporting suicide is what's called the Werther effect, which is based on a novel by Goethe uh, called The Sorrows of Young Werther, which was uh, very popular a few hundred years ago and ends with a very sort of ritualized, almost glamorized um, death by suicide by the, the protagonist. There were concerns at the time in Europe of young people emulating this. So that role of the media, of um, that dissemination of, of models, uh, is, is something which, which goes way back. Moving on, the second paper looks specifically at suicide in young mm. adult men. So we're talking, obviously, not adolescents, so men in presumably up to the age of 30. Why focus on this group? Focusing on this group, because this has been an area of focus for um, governments for, for some time uh, on the risks which are opposed to this age group. The fact is, as uh, the review by Alex Pittman and uh, her colleagues shows, that there is... Uh, a real paucity of evidence and more evidence is needed uh, for what's happening in this age group and what the interventions are that could help. Is there hope, do you think, that there could be some actually meaningful interventions that, that can actually be helpful for, for this specific group of, of young men? Yes, I, I believe there is. One of the obvious risk factors are untreated, undiagnosed uh, mental health problems and 
along with those substance misuse. Uh, the potential to make young men feel more comfortable in approaching mental health services and in seeking professional help with these problems, I think could, could be of great importance. We also can't underestimate the role of, of society in this, that uh, when we have cases of unemployment, when we have people in the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, or we have people who are in stigmatised socio, uh, social groups, these are also uh, areas which, which place people at greater risk for, for self-harm and suicide. So large, larger scale social change can also perhaps offer some sort of solution. The third and final paper in the series, this is looking at something called means restriction, mm. and I assume that sort of says what it does on the tin, and, yes. and that it's actually yes. withdrawing the opportunity mm -hmm. for taking action. Do you want to just uh, tell us a bit about that? Means restriction is, uh, I think, a very important part of uh, any suicide prevention strategy, in that we've got to remember that many, many people who die by suicide have never come into contact with mental health services. And the other thing that we've got to remember is that uh, the decision is often to to attempt to take one's own life is often taken in moments of crisis. The moments of crisis can pass, and if there's a way to keep people safe during those moments through means restriction, it uh, has the potential to save lives. Also worth mentioning that we do run a short leader about mm. suicide. Do you want to just briefly mention that, presumably taking the big picture view, the international health view? Yes. Well, taking the international view... There is uh, a need for more data, uh, especially from low- and middle-income countries. We also need to work on destigmatizing suicide, whether that be through uh, decriminalizing it in law, whether it be through um, media strategies. And the other thing is that we need to learn more about specific local situations, because suicide is such a complex problem that one can never say that there is a particular answer for it. What you need to do is look at the answer in that particular setting and at that particular time. You spoke about new media, and I found that interesting because this is an area which is changing. Suicide research is not an area in which one can stand still and say the problem's solved. There's always something new going on, and there's always the need to find a new solution and to, to keep going. And finally, now we do have some, some other pieces of content relating mm -hmm. to, to the suicide series, as well, apart from the three series papers, mm -hmm. the editorial we've just mentioned. There is a research article concerning suicide in India. Anything else you'd like to mention? Yes, there's also a profile of Keith Horton, who is uh, an expert in suicide based at Oxford University. He's had a very long and uh, an interesting career in the field, which, as he explains in the profile, he got into through a series of, of chance events, really. He's got a very interesting story to tell, and of course his research is, is really second to none. Those are some of the highlights from the latest issue of The Lancet, very much focusing on our three-part suicide series. All details in the print issue of The Lancet, and there's a special dedicated webpage where you can access all the suicide-related content in this week's issue. Many thanks to Niall Boyce and to you all for listening. See you next week.